welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. I am joined today from Australia by Arzan Tarapur, incoming research scholar on South Asia at the Walter H. Shorenstein Asia Pacific Research Center at Stanford. Arzan, welcome to Stanford, and I'm thrilled to have you as a new colleague, and welcome to the SASPod. How, how are you? I am very well. Thank you very much, Lolita. I uh, am uh, very excited to be at Stanford, even though I'm not at Stanford. Right. Um, and I'm very excited uh, to, to be on SASPod uh, and to work with you. Uh, right now, as you mentioned, I am in Sydney. Um, so I feel pretty lucky, not just to be in my hometown, but to be uh, at a, in a place where life is almost normal, right. uh, which I realize many people can't say. Right. Um, so thanks for having me. This is very exciting. Great. Well, I can't wait to learn more about you. I'm very curious about your career tra trajectory. Can you um, tell us more about your interest in South Asia and also your former career in government? Sure. I uh, was I served in the Australian government in the Defence Department uh, for about 13 years. Um, I joined in 2001, um, which was timed perfectly for the post 2001 world. Um, so my my career in defence uh, was defined by the post. 9-11 post-2001 world. Mm. Um, so a lot of my work was focused on the, the security issues and the wars um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, uh, but I always, while that work was ongoing, you know, had a strong interest in, in doing research um, because in government, you generally can't spend more than about five or 10 minutes on any given thing. And, and in right. academia, it's you can't spend less than three years on any given thing. <laughs> um, so I, I went from one extreme to the other. Um, uh, so I was always interested in South Asia uh, and in India, in Indian defense issues, um, because I always thought that India was very rare, if not unique, in the, the very wide spectrum of security issues that it has to deal with. You know, it's a nuclear state that, that is a rival to other nuclear states. Huge conventional military issues, as well as a whole bunch of um, irregular security issues, a whole bunch of uh, domestic security issues. And increasingly, what I'm excited to, to learn more about um, uh, is a whole bunch of what, what in academia is somewhat condescendingly called non-traditional security issues, um, which I'm really keen to learn more about, everything revolving around climate security, human security, et cetera. Uh, those are issues that will, I think, uh, be, 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 be more acute in South Asia than anywhere else in the world. Um, so anyway, so, so when, when my government career ended because I moved to the US, uh, it, there was a, that was a very natural opportunity 
to try a new career and, and a new pathway. So, so off I went, joining academia and, and studying South Asia. So um, <laughs> I imagine uh, I imagine that these two worlds are, um, are looking at similar things from very different perspectives. Did you do an enormous amount of eye rolling when you came into the academy from government? I imagine it totally would be that way, the other way round. But <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> look, there's there's no doubt that that it's a um, that that there are definitely elements of culture shock uh, right. going from government to academia, just in the way people work, um, the way people approach issues. Um, you know, there is that, that awful, that awful cliche, which I do not endorse, uh, but it's widely held that something may be good enough for government work. Right mm. now, that's that's usually used sort of derisively, but I actually think, um, as a as a glass half full kind of guy, I think that's actually there is a kernel of truth to that, which is actually a good thing. Which is that you know, government in government, you're forced to to do things to achieve things to to achieve effects, um, and you have to do that in time, on time, and that means you cannot have a perfect answer. Uh, you cannot do all the research you want to do. You cannot uh, have a fourth crack at editing your draft. So, so things have to get done. So there's definitely a different culture in academia where you are encouraged to think more deeply, to view something from all different perspectives, to talk to as many people as you can about a topic. And to expose yourself critically, to expose yourself to a lot of bruising uh, criticism. Um, so you have to have a pretty thick skin, I think, in academia. Um, so, so it's definitely, look, culture, definitely different culture, definitely different perspectives on many of the same issues. But I think they're also quite complementary um, perspectives. And, and, and it's up to the individual, I think, who's lucky enough to bridge the two worlds, it's up to the individual to find that compliment. Um, literally today, this morning, I was in a Twitter conversation with a couple of academic friends uh, and we were talking about um, a piece that I wrote um, that came out in the monkey cage, Washington Post monkey cage where we talk about you know, certain international relations theories as they apply to the current India-China crisis. Mm -hmm. and, and we all sort of realize that you know, when you are an academic, you are trying to understand the world in terms of models and theories, um, which are sometimes hard enough to do with all the information and in retrospect. But imagine trying to fit the world into a model to make sense of the world um, when you don't have the information, when you are pressed for time. Um, those models that, or, or the reality could fit many different models at the same time and, and they can be indistinguishable. That makes it very difficult for the, for the policymaker in government to, to make sense of the world. So I think, you know, the, the two worlds are very complementary as well.
And do you feel that, um, it seems to me that at Stanford, they're quite integrated in the way that um, there seems to be a lot of interconnectivity between politics and academic research. Do you feel that too? Do you feel that it, you're going to be able to integrate those two lives of yours to some extent? Yeah, that, I mean, that's certainly one of the, the big draw cards of, of Stanford, of yeah. FSI and APARC, where I am. Yeah. Um, now, I say this obviously with a caveat that I've been there for all of 16 days, so <laughs> take this with a grain of salt. Um, but so far, um, and everything I've seen before I you know, formally started, seems to suggest that, yeah, there is... Um, I mean, both in the objectives of the institution um, of Stanford and FSI and APARC, um, as well as in, in the identity of the people who make up that institution, there is a lot of sort of policy-facing um, character to it. Um, people do go in and out of government between Stanford and D.C., um, and that's a great thing, I think, because it not only brings that academic expertise into government, which is critical, but also then it brings that government policy relevant focus to academia. Um, and it's critical to do that to shape the questions that we ask uh, in academia. You know, uh, a lot of academia which doesn't have this benefit that Stanford has, uh, winds up uh, being very self-referential, uh, which, which can be fine. Um, but if you, are, if, if you design your purpose as serving the policy debate, um, then you need to also understand what matters to policymakers. And there's no better way to do that than to have former policymakers and former government types um, in your institution, shaping the research agenda. So that's, yeah, I, I think that's definitely um, the, one of the, the big draw cards for me in, in joining FSI. And that's APAC. great. And I'm so happy that we'll have you as a uh, specifically South Asia focus. That's part of your mandate, right? To focus on South Asia. It is 100% of my mandate. So, <laughs> um, so great, so great. <laughs> it's, it's not just, it's, yeah, that's right. It's not just my mandate, it's my job title. It's your um, job title, so, yeah, yes. <laughs> in, case, in, case I ever, in case I ever stray too far. Um, I, it, yeah, it's, it's absolutely. I am the, the, the South Asia Research Scholar at APARC, which, which is a position I understand that's been in abeyance for for some time so i'm i'm really excited that that stanford's made the decision to to, to restart it to stand it up again because you know i'm, I'm biased and, and i think you'll agree that <laughs> it's a it's an area that people should be looking at so well and and it and it deserves someone with south asia in their job title uh as, as i do so <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Yeah, exactly. I'm just I'm just delighted, exactly. and I don't know about the history because I haven't been there uh, long. But I know that this is for now a, a, a new or a revived position. And um, yes. yes, again, total kudos to FSI for making that happen. Now you mentioned India, China. We're going to talk about that, um, but before yep. we go there, because I imagine that could be the rest of the podcast. I'm sure you have a lot to say about it, and I have a lot the, of questions. The rest of the night, Lolita. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> And tomorrow. <laughs> yes. Um, so um, this is perhaps not the clearest question because I'm trying to formulate it as, as I kind of go along. But I want to ask you about 
Australia's role in the foreign policy of, of both countries, India, China, because Australia mm -hmm. is, is really uniquely, I mean, geopolitically uh, connected or situated, uh, but then also about the role of higher education in international relations. And I understand this is a big question too, but um, yeah, yeah, can you shed, can you help me think this through a little bit? Yeah, so um, we'll, 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 we'll take this journey together as we try and figure <laughs> this out. Um, look, the, the first part of the question, Australia, um, as it relates to India and China, I, I think what we've seen just in the last few months, really, um, this year, let's say, is a consolidation or a, or a sort of um, coming together of trends that we've seen un, un, you know, un, un, unveiling over the last decade or so, but they've really accelerated and come to a head this year on, on both Australia-China and Australia-India uh, angles. So what I mean is that um, over the past decade or so, there has been on the Australia-China front, for example, a growing recognition in Australia that China is, while a major economic partner, it is also a major security threat. Um, I think the Defence Department was a sort of leading voice in this debate in Australia. Uh, but a few years ago, around 2017, it sort of really crystallised in Australia when, when there was a, a, a feverish concern over what Australians call foreign interference, which is a whole raft of um, concerns revolving everything from disinformation to illicitly paying politicians. Um, so, so it really crystallised that, that China, uh, while important as a certainly economic partner and potentially as a foreign policy partner in certain sectors, was also, we have to be clear-eyed, um, poses certain th threats to Australian uh, national security. So, so that is, has been a trend over the last few years. And by 2020, um, when the Australian government decided that it would advocate for a independent review into the origins and management of the coronavirus, really came to a head and Australia has since then borne the brunt of um, some pretty unsubtle Chinese coercion, mm -hmm. uh, economic coercion, and very recently um, coercion against Australian journalists. Uh, so, so, that, so on the Australia-China side, we see the culmination of that trend. On the Australia-India side, we see the culmination of, a, of almost the mirror image trend um, of warming relations uh, driven in no small part by the mutual Australian and Indian um, perceptions of, of threat from China. Right. Uh, and by 2020, uh, when uh, there was supposed to be a major bilateral summit early in the year, which was then postponed because of the pandemic and was later held as a virtual summit, uh, that summit, you know, signed a whole bunch of agreements that, again, really sort of capped off a lot of work over recent years um, on, on 
whole range again of economic and scientific and, and, and policy and importantly security and defense agreements. So, so we see Australia as, as um, um, over the last few years and especially this year being more clear on the threat posed by China and on the opportunities presented by India. Now, that's a very simplified view, but that's, that's what seems to be happening. Now, when it comes to higher education, I think, um, again, we, we see, I could, you could make the case that higher education is um, almost a microcosm of some of those broader trends. Right. Um, over the past, I think, decade or so, um, the Australian higher education sector has completely opened its doors to foreign students um, as a revenue measure, revenue raising measure. Um, and the number of foreign students has, I think it's right to say, more than doubled in the past decade or so, or at least until last year, until, until the pandemic. Um, uh, and by far, the largest source of foreign students is China. Uh, the second largest source of foreign students is India, um, mm -hmm. but there are, you know, only half the number of um, Indian students as there are Chinese students, uh, and 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 the ballooning um, presence of Chinese students and Chinese, therefore, money, and as well as Chinese investment, uh, has allowed the Australian higher education sector to to just develop. Um, in, in, in ways that it hasn't, uh, I think, in decades, which is particularly stark when you consider that the government has completely reduced um, its funding of the higher education sector. Right. And yet universities like my alma mater I walk through campus and it's unrecognisable because of the number of brand new shiny buildings there. Right. Um, a lot of that is funded by foreign students and the, the Chinese cohort is the largest and, and most... Uh, lucrative uh, source of, of foreign students. But while the higher education sector um, benefits in, in many ways from that, it also, again, as a, as a microcosm of the larger trend, sees a lot of threats coming from that um, um, presence of Chinese students. Uh, threats that include uh, uh, sometimes uh, hidden and then later revealed connections between the students and, uh, for example, the PLA or Chinese um, state security apparatus. Mm -hmm. uh, so students are coming and uh, trying to gain intellectual property um, without acknowledging their ties to the Chinese military. Uh, you also see uh, China related issues becoming more politicized and more, um, um, how do you say, emotive on campus. Um, and, and while there are plenty of um, activists who are willing to hold a rally in support of Uyghurs or in support of Hong Kong, uh, there will always be a counter protest um, of very, very vociferous nationalist um, students who may also uh, include um, Chinese people who are not students. 
So it's a very highly charged issue. There have been cases of a student, for example, at the University of Queensland who's been suspended because of his very vocal, he claims, because of his very vocal anti-China stance and the institution doesn't want to rock the boat. Um, that's what he claims. The, the, the institution claims that he was, you know, disruptive and disorderly. Uh, so, so it's a highly charged issue right now um, yeah. on the China, on, 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 when it comes to Chinese students. And in contrast, despite the fact that there are um, tens of thousands of Indian students here, you barely hear anything about them because they are not connected to the Indian state in the same way. Um, they are not involved in as politically salient hot button issues. Uh, and of course, they don't bring in as much money. So, um, so the Australian higher education sector's dependence on India is far, far smaller um, and far less uh, a point of leverage, far less uncertain. So, uh, yes. so it's, it's quite a stark contrast between the two. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about... Um... Thank you for that ex extremely comprehensive answer to a very ill thought through or poorly thought through or just beginning to think through a kind of question. Um, you mean a I, long I, and rambling answer? That's a nice, no, no. Uh, comprehensive is a <laughs> nice way of saying that. Thank you. I learned a lot is what I meant. <laughs> I'm thinking about Stanford's location in Silicon Valley and um, yeah. Uh, the way Indian politics certainly plays out in Silicon Valley among our non-student constituents. Uh, um, yes. And yes. Um, to some extent uh, among the student body, but I definitely, it's, it's different. It's definitely very different from what you described with the Chinese students for right. lots and lots of obvious and perhaps less obvious reasons. But yeah, I, I'd like to ask you this question again in a couple of years and, and see yeah. how... Uh, how yeah. that's changed. And the reason I make it that long a, a, a gap uh, is that I think we need to be on campus before we can really <laughs> exactly. talk about campus, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we, we, need a, exactly we need a little bit more time. All right, so now let's, let's get to the big one. And uh, this is not a long rambling question, but I imagine it's going to be a very <laughs> long... Long and rambling. rambling. <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what is going on between India and China? Um, the Chinese side has not shared with the Indian side its maps of where it thinks the LAC is. The Indians, um, therefore, uh, sometimes uh, will, will reference areas that are settled and unsettled. It's a very complicated issue where the border is delineated. But whatever, whatever the ins and outs of that, of that complicated um, intricacy, uh, what we've seen since about May um, is a Chinese attempt to, in several places, uh, come across the LAC, or at least what the Indians perceive to be the LAC, um, and to essentially build new fortifications or at least uh, encamp in areas and to, to essentially assert control over territory that they did not previously control. Now, the Chinese view is that this has always been Chinese land, so we're just taking what has always been ours or we're correcting um, previously incorrect facts on the ground. 
the Indian view is, well, the Indian government's view is that the Chinese have made attempts along certain axes to do that. Um, the Indian strategic community uh, is is sometimes um, is sometimes hysterical, but but at least some of the more serious commentators have said that the government even is downplaying what has happened, and that the Chinese um, incursions since May are actually much more serious than what the government, the Indian government, will admit. Um, and so for months in very high altitude barren land in um, an Indian territory called Ladakh, mm-hmm. um, uh, where the LAC runs, um, there's been a huge standoff. Uh, both sides have reinforced uh, their claims, have reinforced troops on their side of the claim. Um, a couple of times they have come to blows, um, most notoriously on June the 15th when there was a skirmish, a hand-to-hand skirmish, no shots right. were fired. Right. But um, at least uh, 20 Indian soldiers died and, and an unknown number of Chinese soldiers died. Right. Um, and then at the very end of August, uh, things got a little bit hairy uh, when both sides started scrambling to what they call or what the Indians call readjust their positions. Uh, So the Indians tried to claim certain peaks, certain heights, and, and, and the Chinese did the same. And there were shots fired for the first time since 1975, because for the last few decades, confidence building measures have dictated that soldiers are very restrained in how they handle their weapons and so for the first time in 2020 um, for 45 years shots were fired um, albeit not aimed shots Uh, and and so we're in a situation where these two armies are um, as the indian cable news cliche goes eyeball to eyeball the, the diplomatic track is still running, which is good news. Um, the foreign ministers of the two countries got together and reaffirmed that they do in fact care about these confidence building measures and will implement new ones. Uh, but, you know, while, while there is, I think, an intent on both sides to cool it and not let things get out of hand, um, by the same token, A, uh, that's a lot easier said than done and mistakes and miscalculations can always happen in such a tense environment. And B, even if things don't get that bad and don't end up in conflict, there's still um, a long way to go before the two sides disengage, um, as they call it, and pull back to their garrisons and 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 end the crisis. And frankly, as I said in the in the in the piece this week, um, it's going to be very very hard to implement any agreement um, because trust on both sides has vanished now, um, and it's hard to escape the conclusion that the LAC will end up being uh, much more militarized than it has been in recent years. Uh, going forward, even in sort of quote-unquote normal times, even once the the crisis sort of recedes, which probably won't happen until next year, 
even then, uh, the sort of permanent position of troops will be much higher than it has been, uh, which is not good news in any in any way. <laughs> and why not? I mean, obvious, for obvious reasons, why not? But but um, yeah. I'm just wondering how that affects the lives of the people the people who live near there. Uh, um, yeah. So um, that's a tough question because. Um, Again, it depends on um, who you ask. Um, the the um, look. This border is a is is in many ways um, a fiction. Right. It, it doesn't it doesn't actually exist. Mm. So um, these mountain passes have, have frequently have traditionally been used. Um, to, to go from one valley to another um, by herders and by, by local people. Um, and so from their perspective, um, this has always been an issue that, that, that can be, that, that, that to an extent there are bounds on how much it affects their, their lives because um, it's not like there are border checkpoints. On the other hand, uh, the land that we're talking about is very sparsely populated. There's hardly any, um, how do you say, sort of established or developed um, economic activity. So it's not like there's big farmlands or there's, uh, there's certainly not major population centres. They're tiny, tiny villages, um, low density, sparsely populated. Um, which is why I think, you know, there's, there's not much of a constituency, um, certainly on the Chinese side and probably not much on the Indian side, uh, to, 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 to press their capitals to change how they do business. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there's not a lot of people getting in the way of it. Um, right. Yeah. So you mentioned the border as a fiction. Um, we could talk about that, but I want to um, ask you about a different fiction. This is kind of our, um, our wrap-up question, I guess. Um, so okay. I am in the Center for South Asia. You are uh, positioned as a scholar of South Asia is in your job description. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so how do we... So there's India's geopolitical role in the larger region that we talked about, but it's, there's also its role in the subcontinent itself. And yep. so how do, we, how do we accommodate this notion of a, a South Asia? Like I try to create programming that reflects all of the subcontinent, but that's not that's not always that easy. One has to be super intentional about it because of yes. um, the way India dominates the disciplines. Um, yes. But sometimes it also feels like, quote unquote, South Asia is a, 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 a fiction. Uh, it's yeah. a governmental conceptualization. So maybe we struggle yeah. to represent it because it doesn't actually quote unquote yeah. exist. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's a that's a really that's a really good way to put it. That's a really good insight. Um look I'm I am um living, breathing evidence of this um um distortion uh where often 
India becomes synonymous with South Asia or, the, or vice versa. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm evidence of it because uh, my personal research has been heavily focused on India, not exclusively, but heavily, um, because certainly in the sort of traditional security sphere, India um, is, is, a, is, is clearly um, the most important actor, uh, the most consequential actor uh, in the region. Um, and India's relationships with Pakistan and China are the relationships that define the security landscape of the region. Um, so, so I completely, um, I, I think I am self-aware enough to realize that I am completely an example of, of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so given that my job, however, is to be a scholar on all of South Asia, the way I'm going to approach this is at least until, <laughs> until I'm in a position to grow the South Asia effort um, with new positions, um, while I'm still just a, a one-person show, uh, the way I'm going to do it is, as you said, by being sort of very deliberate and structured. So, for example, uh, the programming that I intend to do uh, in this quarter is, is, happens to be India, China, because it's, I think, timely. Uh, but the programming that I intend to do next quarter, in the winter quarter at least, mm -hmm. um, is, is, is going to adhere to a theme. Um, and, I'm, and I'm stealing a phrase here from, from a fellow uh, South Asianist at Stanford, Asfandir Mir, um, uh, is next quarter, the theme is going to be from Afghanistan to Bangladesh, um, deliberately excluding India, because I think you need to, and this is something I learned in, in government, in, if you want to focus efforts on something, then you need to carve out institutional boundaries for that. And so my institutional boundary is going to be a series of events, uh, programming that is deliberately and explicitly about the non-Indian countries of South Asia um, because otherwise, you know, the, the, <laughs> uh, I nearly walked into a terrible pun. Um, otherwise the, the, the big country in the region is going to dominate the region. So I think the approach I'm going to take is to be, as you said, I think that's a very good word is to be very deliberate about it. Um, and to be the, and, and to, and to be very structured about it. Um, and in the same way, I think, um, to offset my personal research focus which is on very sort of traditional security issues um, I'm going to very deliberately and in a structured way um, try and bring in enlist the help of and bring in people to, to help talk about uh, non-traditional security and non-security issues um, because otherwise you know if, if you leave it if you leave me to my own devices, then, then I'll just, you know, talk about tanks all day. But, but we can't do that. No, and really don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> as, as the Centre for South Asia, I, I'm excited about the programming you're planning and, um, yep. and we'd love to work with you and, and to uh, continue to be very intentional about the way that we represent uh, the region. Uh, for for those, I know that you, um, Arzan, listen to some of the former podcasts. For the listeners, um, 
if you're interested in hearing more about and the quote unquote non-traditional, I think they might even be called soft security. I think that came up. So there oh, yeah. are yeah. there are podcasts with um, Asfandir Mir, who um, Arzan just mentioned as having coined the phrase from Afghanistan to Bangladesh. Is that right? Is that the phrase? That, that is a phrase. I don't, I, that, that's at least the first time I heard it. It may right. be a, a, a phrase that's out there in the wilderness as well. It may not be his, but we, he made us aware of it. So, okay, we'll credit right. him with that. And then there's also a podcast uh, that I did a few weeks back with Devak Das, who talks about yes. what I think was soft security, definitely the, the, the human security, right? Yes, yes, yes. Again, all of these terms are heavily loaded. So yeah. take yeah, them as a big grain of salt. Definitely. Yep. Listen, thank you so much for talking to me today. Good luck with your new position. And I can't wait to actually meet you once we're back on campus, but I imagine that is a bit of a wait. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not too much of a wait. Thank you so much for having me uh, on SASPOD. Um, thank you for, so much for the warm welcome to Stanford and I can't wait to get stuck in. All right, thank you. A very special thanks to Soham Shiva for recreating and recording the music and to Yasmin Diosaran for editing. Thank you for listening to the SASPod, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for joining us and I hope you can tune in again soon. Makam fair